Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of God shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you, Elise. Amen. It's good to see everyone this morning. It is joy for me to be with you today. We are about three weeks out before Christmas. And if that is news to you, my apologies. <laughs> I, I think Christmas has a way of us making feel nostalgic. And nostalgia is this wishful thinking and longing for the past. And that's why we have Christmas traditions, right? We have traditions to help us think about all the things that we have done in the past. So in the Lee household, in our household, one of the traditions that we created early on when the, our kids were born was that uh, we would collect nutcrackers. Now, I don't know why people collect nutcrackers, but we have these, I think we have over 40 nutcrackers we collected. But if we could zoom in, I want you to see my favorite nutcracker. It's the Dallas Cowboys nutcracker that you see here, and, and go Cowboys and go Mustangs as well. I, I, bet, I bet you all have traditions, and some of your traditions probably involve maybe baking cookies with a family member as we lead up to Christmas Day, or perhaps putting up the tree by listening to one of the most popular Christmas songs ever played, which is All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Now, so we, we like to savor feelings from the past. And even, even some of the Christmas songs that we sing want us to look backward. So think about that song, uh, White Christmas, written by Irving Berlin. And there is that stanza in the first verse that goes like this. I am dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, right? You see that phrase, I used to know? Or how about that song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? The third stanza goes like this. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Now I had to look up the word yore right? That's an old English language. Your means long time ago. So these Christmas songs we sing wants us to look back because there is a sense of us wanting to remember the idyllic past, nostalgia, right? And, and through all the family gatherings and warm family Christmas traditions, there is a longing inside each of us. And this longing is captured in a collection of essays written by Frederick Buechner called The Longing for Home. And Bigner says there is an intense longing in the human heart. Whether we realize it or not, there is this intense longing for us to come back home. And, and we live all of our adult lives chasing after this imaginative home. But this longing for home is not just, it's not a physical place. It's not even the memories of the past. But this home is, is a place where we feel belonged, where we feel loved, where we feel seen and cared for. And all of us are longing for this place called home. And longing is, uh, this home is the deep need to be anchored in a secured, restored past. 
in order for us to be pulled forward into the future. And, you know, this desire for us to come back home, it's, it's deeply embedded in us. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, were removed from their eternal home in Garden of Eden, ever since then, we've been wanting to go back home. So Frederick Bigner, he quotes this, the longing for home is so universal a form of longing that there is even a special word for it, which is, of course, homesickness. And whether we know it or not, I'm telling you, friends, all of us are homesick. All of us are homesick. So we, we, we want to go back. And there's this longing. And this is why Christians and churches have a season called Advent, the season of arrival, when we, when we celebrate the homecoming, the very first homecoming of, of God of the universe to here on, on earth, birth of Jesus, a real historic event. And we long for the second homecoming, that God will come back again to restore all things and to make all things new. And we want that future because we know that something isn't quite right in this world, right? We feel that. Wars are not supposed to happen. Moms are not supposed to have miscarriages. Tragic car accidents are not supposed to happen. And, and we, we know that inside of us, and we long for a, a better day. And you see, many, many centuries ago, people of Israel felt the same way. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 40 that we just heard this morning. Isaiah 40, prophet Isaiah shows us how our true homecoming does not come by looking into the past, but it comes to us by looking into the future, by looking forward. So let me give you a historical context to Isaiah chapter 40. For all of you history buffs, you know that something significant happened in 586 BC before Christ. We call this the Babylonian captivity. Uh, there was a mass deportation that happened, not immigration, but deportation. When Jewish people were, they were forced to leave their homeland. This lasted for 70 plus years. So imagine families being separated. The temple was burned down. The artifacts and, 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 and treasures were ruined. The, the, the ruling class, so the leadership class, the, the thought leaders and influential people, they were separated and they were forced to resettle in different places within the Babylonian empire. And so Isaiah chapter 40 where is where Isaiah is speaking prophetic words to people in exile. And to be in exile is the opposite of being at home. Because in exile, when you're in exile, everything feels strange. The customs that you're used to is no longer there. The food is different, the language is different, and you just feel out of place. So to be in exile is like being in this perpetual state of homesickness. Now, many of you know that I, our family, my parents immigrated when I was in my elementary school years, and we were from Korea, and I remember coming to West Texas and not having to, not speaking English, I'm having to learn. And you know my story how, because the school I went to did not have ESL class, English as second language. They put me with kids that were two years younger than, than my age. So I remember going to the first class and they had these little kindergarten chairs. I would sit in the little kindergarten chairs and, 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 and that wasn't bad. That was all okay. That was, these are actually fun memories, but I remember the very uh, last day, we had uh, the field day. You remember the field days? 
in elementary years. And this was a new concept for me. I'm like, okay, this is fun. And there were some confusing things that were said. I just could not understand as someone who's coming into a brand new land. First, they did this thing called uh, a potato sack race, right? So they asked us to get in this potato sack and I did it. That's, and I get, as a kid, I get it. I see a relay race, you go and come back, you go and come back. So here I am, I'm lining up. And, but this girl next to me turns to me and I knew her. She goes, Jay, I have butterflies in my stomach. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> you ate butterflies and you have, butter, you have more than one butterflies in your stomach? How could this be? I had no concept of the expression that she was using. Some, I, and I didn't say anything to her. I'm like, okay, hopefully she'll make the race. And I'm, I'm getting ready. Then I'm, as I'm about to run, uh, a, a friend of mine, this is the kid who helped me understand and acclimate to new culture. He goes, Jay, go break a leg. You want me to break my leg in this race? We know that expression. Good luck. It was so foreign. And I remember that moment that, yeah, I'm not in my familiar place. And there was kind of longing to know and, and, and go back. But, but in many of you, all of us, we can relate to this, right? But here's the reality. While we look to the past for this home, just like how people in exile wanted to go back to their past. The reality was the past no longer existed. The past is impenetrable. You can literally never go back to the past. Just like how you can never uh, be a 10 year old again and to bake those cookies with your grandmother. Or like when my son in college returned last year from his very first year in college, came back from Christmas break and he said, Daddy, what happened to my room? Everything is gone. I said, yeah, we gave it to your younger brother. It's sorry, things have changed. And change is hard. And change is hard. But, but, but the good news of Isaiah is that God has a way of bringing us out of homesickness by bringing or speaking words of comfort to us. Look at, look at verse 1 again. The word comfort is repeated twice. Comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord. So in Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it twice. Comfort, comfort. They didn't have the technology to italicize or bold or underline with double lines. Comfort, comfort, emphasis. And in English language, word comfort, when we hear that, we think of like soothing, make it easy, freedom from pain. That's not the Hebrew expression here. The Hebrew expression for comfort is more like the 16th, 11th version of King James Version, Old English language, where it's com it, it comes with two words actually put together, comfort, fort, strength, with strength. It's as if God is saying to us, I'm going to provide this shield of protection over you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be your provider and I will strengthen you. That is the comfort that God gives to us. And, and, and this idea of comfort is like double blessing. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, God's people have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, what does it mean for double for all her sins? That word double, here's the image in Hebrew expression. It's like something being folded over like this, like a piece of paper and folded over. The image is, pretend like you, uh, you had debt and you owe large sums of money to a creditor. And over the years, you were having to pay up, pay up, pay up. And the very last day came, the creditor would come to your house, would take the receipt, 
very last payment and would fold it over saying your debt has been paid. And they would post that on the door saying, you're, you're clean. And John Calvin says this understanding of our du- the doubleness is a double forgiveness. That with all the sins that we have, with all the guilt that we may have, all the actions in the past or in present and future, that God has folded over for us. And there's double grace, grace upon grace. And this double grace is captured in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, I believe in verse 16, where John says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, double grace, outflow, over, just over and abundant flowing of God's love and grace for us to cover and double cover over our sins. And the reason why we need this double grace is because all of us, all of us will go through some kind of a desert wilderness experience in some point in life. And wilderness can be scary, right? Wilderness is like spiritual Babylon. It's, it's a place of testing and waiting. And, and for us, wilderness can come in different expressions. Uh, aging parents, hard marriage, difficulty at work. You, you just name it. The trials that we go through in life. And no one is immune to the trials that we go through. And, and church family, we know what that feels like, literally, right? As church. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound counterintuitive, but I believe to be very true. Do you know that God allows us, God allows us to go through wilderness desert experiences to prepare us for a new future? The wilderness is both a place of preparation and revelation. It's where God reveals to us something new. And look at verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. So let me show you a picture of a Judean wilderness desert. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that there are really, there's lots of hot places, right? During the summer months, it can go up to 130 degrees, high peaks, low valleys. Desert is no place for life. And this makes you wonder, why did God have to prepare his people in the desert. Do you know that in the Middle East, there are actually really fun, cool places. There are lush fertile grounds. There are places next to the ocean and and the lake, green valleys. God did not have to prepare his people in the desert. Why did God have to prepare his people in the wilderness desert when there are other places? And the reason is because the wilderness is a place where God strips away everything that we know And God removes everything that we are familiar so that we can trust only in God and depend God on himself alone. And and desert becomes that very place where God finds us and gives us a future. In the darkness of desert, God becomes light. It happened to Moses in the Sinai desert. It happened with Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And when you start looking at the word wilderness or desert in the scripture, it's everywhere. It's where God finds us. He comes for us and comforts us. It's where he appears to us and he wrestles with us. He tends to us. Uh, 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 desert is where he sees us and he calls us. The desert is where God gives us dreams and visions. 
and the places in our lives where we feel most alone and abandoned is a place where God shows up and, and he meets us. You, you see, the gift of desert is this. The gift of desert is that God can make even deserts beautiful. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places of plain. Let me make two observations here. First, what we see here is this great leveling that's taking place. It's flattening of the ground. The image here is, uh, if you've ever driven on Highway I-10 going to El Paso, you have nothing but this flat, flat, dry desert, right? And, and I know driving to El Paso doesn't sound too exciting. We Texans, we like the mountains of Colorado. I've seen you at Gastos and Amarillo and Delhart and Trinidad. We like the majesty of the valleys of Grand Canyon. We, we love the peaks and the valleys. We don't like flat ground. That's not how we're built. Flat ground is boring. But you know, that's when we are on the outside looking in. Because when you're in the rough terrain, when you, when you are having to, to, to run uphill and you're exhausted and drained, your body would do anything for a flat level ground. All you runners know what I'm talking about. You want to be on the other side. You long for El Paso at that moment. And, and, and this, so if, if you have been through long, hard periods, if you have been in the crushing, pounding marathon of exile, I want you to know that God is in the business of creating level grounds. This is from Psalm 140, verse 10. And this is the picture that Isaiah is inviting us into. And here's a second observation. When we read this passage, it's as if we think we're the ones who are having to go out with an axe and shovel and, and level the ground for God. And actually, that's what people in the Old Testament actually had to do. They were called forerunners before an important person or a king would arrive. They would, the forerunners would go out and make the, the paths smooth. But that's not what we see in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. These are all passive verbs. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. So God is saying, I'm the one who's going to be doing the work. I'm the one who's going to build this highway to come after you. But here's where we get it, get it wrong. When we go through these valleys and deserts in life, and I'm talking about these long, enduring, hard, challenging periods. Along the way, we pick up these, what I would call self-help techniques to, to cope with challenges in life to make us feel better. And, and we come to believe that if we try a little harder or work a little faster or have better friends, somehow that, that there's a better life just around the corner. And the truth is that self-salvation does not exist. And that's never the case. And this is the warning that prophet Isaiah was trying to communicate to the people in exile, that they had a major problem that they could not fix on their own. And you see, the greatest problem that people of Israel faced was not that they were surrounded by superpowered nations or they were surrounded by enemies. But the greatest problem that Isaiah was trying to communicate was that they were homesick. 
And they want to go back home to feel and to know what, it's, what it was like for to be found again by God and to be loved by God once again. And, and, and so what, what, what did God do? God solved their greatest problem by creating this cosmic highway. Not so that we can go after God. No, it's so that God could come after us. And here's the truth. The only homecoming that matters is Jesus coming to us and creating and, and, and putting his life in us and the lives of God's people. And the longing that we have is, is this eternity that God has placed in each person, in each of our soul, to be fully restored to God. And this is the story of Advent, that God creating a highway for us. And God has sent his son, Jesus, for all of our double sins. God has covered us with his double grace. And God will come back again to restore all things, all things for God's people. Let's pray. Let's pray. And if this passage has provoked you to come to terms with that ache, that longing inside, we, we just invite you to do what so many others who have been stranded in the winter of life have done, to, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So Father, we, we come freely this morning now. We seek you to fulfill our longings. And we ask Lord Jesus, to come into our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And as we're about to enter into this time of receiving the communion, the Lord's Supper, may we once again experience what it means to know that you're truly good, for us to taste and see that Lord is very good. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.